Tonight's talk is the first in a series of three on the topic of not-self. If you ever took a course in Buddhism at college, you probably heard that one of the basic principles of the Buddhist teaching is there is no self. So tonight I'm going to hear, tell you that your professor lied to you. <laughs> the Buddha never said that. In fact, the one time that he was asked, point blank, is there a self, is there no self, he refused to answer. And so tonight's talk is going to cover the topic of why. And then tomorrow night and Thursday night are going to talk on the topic of what, well, what did he mean when he taught the teaching of not-self. How did he look at the, the issue of self and not-self? And because this is such an abstract topic and tends to be counterintuitive, I'd like to give a brief outline of what we're going to say. Is that he did not take a position on whether self exists or whether self doesn't exist. But he did talk a lot about the process of what he called I-making and my-making. In other words, you create a sense of self, who you are and what belongs to you all the time. It's a repeated thing. You make many different selves in the course of the day. And because it's an issue of karma, the making here, then it becomes an issue of well, when is it skillful to create a sense of self and when is it not? What kind of selves are skillful and what kind of selves are not? So the question here is not so much do I have a self or what am I? It's, been more, it's more what is skillful and what is not skillful in terms of creating this sense of self. And notice this is the reverse of how the questions of karma and self are usually related. Usually we look at karma in the framework of the teaching on not-self, saying if there is no self, who does the karma, who experiences the results. But here the teachings on not-self and self are viewed in the framework of karma. You just switch the context around. In other words, when is it skillful karma to hold on to a sense or perception of self? And what senses of self are skillful at what times? And then when is it skillful to drop those perceptions of self? But because this is such an abstract topic, I'd like to start first with a story. Kind of warm you up for the topic. Okay. I'm going to be reading from a book, uh, The Once and Future King. Does anyone know this book? Do you remember the early part of the story where young Arthur, whose name was Wart, was being trained by Merlin? And Merlin's training for young Wart was to turn him into different kinds of animals. And then he would go and learn lessons from the animals. And tonight's lesson is going to be the lesson from the badger. Turns out the badger lives in a, in a tunnel which is very much like a, that of an Oxford don. He's a, he's a professorial type, okay? okay? And he's written a thesis that he wants to read to the young ward. <clears throat> this is how the thesis goes. People often ask, as an idle question, <clears throat> whether the process of evolution began with a chicken or the egg. Was there an egg out of which the first chicken came, or did a chicken lay the first egg? I am in a position to say that the first thing created was the egg. When God had manufactured all the eggs out of which the fishes and the serpents and the birds and the mammals and even the duck-billed pla duck platypus would eventually emerge, he called the embryos before him and saw that they were good. 
<clears throat> Perhaps I ought to explain, added the badger, lowering his papers nervously and looking at the ward over the top of them, that all embryos look very much the same. They are what you are before you were born. And whether you're going to be a tadpole or a peacock or a camel leopard or a man, when you're an embryo, you look just like a peculiarly repulsive and helpless human being. I continue as follows. The embryos stood in front of God with their feeble hands clasped politely over their stomachs and their heavy heads hanging down respectfully. And God addressed them. He said, Now, you embryos, here you are, all looking exactly the same, and we're going to give you the choice of what you want to be. When you grow up, you will get bigger anyway, but we are pleased to grant you another gift as well. You may alter any parts of yourselves into anything which you think would be useful to you in later life. For instance, at the moment you cannot dig. Anybody who would like to turn his hands into a pair of spades or garden forks is allowed to do so. Or to put it another way, at present you can use your mouths only for eating. Anybody who would like to use his mouth as an offensive weapon can change it by asking and be a cork and drill or a saber-toothed tiger. <clears throat> now then, step up and choose your tools, but remember that what you choose you will grow into and will have to stick to. All the embryos thought the matter over politely, and then one by one they stepped up before the eternal throne. They were allowed two or three specializations so that some chose to use their arms as flying machines and their mouths as weapons or crackers or drillers or spoons, while others selected to use their bodies as boats and their hands as oars. We badgers thought very hard and decided to ask three boons. We wanted to change our skins for shields, our mouths for weapons, and our arms for garden forks. These boons were granted. Everybody specialized in one way or another, and some of us in very strange ones. For instance, one of the desert lizards decided to swap his whole body for blotting paper. <laughs> and one of the toads who lived in the droughty antipodes decided simply to be a water bottle. The asking and granting took up two long days. They were the fifth and sixth, so far as I remember. And at the very end of the sixth day, just before it was time to knock off for the weekend, they had got through all the little embryos except one. This embryo was man. Well, our little man, said God, you have waited till the last and slept on your decision. We are sure you've been thinking hard all the time. What can we do for you? Please, God, said the embryo, I think you made me in the shape which I now have for reasons best known to yourselves. This is the Christian God, not the Jewish God, okay? <laughs> They come in plurals. <clears throat> and then it would be rude to change. If I am to have my choice, I will stay as I am. I will not alter any of the parts which you gave me for other and doubtless inferior tools. And I will stay a defenseless embryo all my life, doing my best to make myself a few feeble implements out of the wood, iron, and other materials which you have seen fit to put before me. If I want a boat, I will try to construct it out of trees. And if I want to fly, I will put together a chariot to do it for me. Probably I've been very silly in refusing to take advantage of your kind offer, but I've done my very best to think it over carefully and now hope that the feeble decision of this small innocent will find favor with yourselves. Well done, exclaimed the creator in delighted tones. Here, all you embryos, come here with your beaks and whatnots to look on our first man. He is the only one who has guessed our riddle out of all of you. And we have the great pleasure of conferring upon him the order of dominion over the fowls of the air and the beasts of the earth and the fishes of the sea. Now let the rest of you get along and love and multiply, for it is time to knock off for Sunday. As for you, man, you will be a naked tool all your life, though a user of tools. Underline that line, underline that line okay? 
You will look like an embryo till they bury you, but all the others will be embryos before your might. Eternally undeveloped, you will always remain potential in our image, able to see some of our sorrows and feel some of our joys. We are partly sorry for you, man, but partly hopeful. Run along, then, and do your best. And listen, man, before you go. Well, asked Adam, turning back from his dismissal. We were only going to say, said God, shyly twisting their hands together. Well, we're just going to say, God bless you. <laughs> okay. The message there is that and if you identify with your tools, you're going to suffer. But if you learn how to use them as tools, you're going to be a lot more free. And that's the basic message of the Buddha's teachings on self. If you learn how to use your sense of self as a tool, you'll gain, some, you'll gain a great deal of advantage from it. Let me find my glasses here. Okay. So, let's talk first about some basic assumptions. First, it's important to remember the purpose and extent of the Buddha's teachings. As he once said, that all he taught was suffering and the end of suffering. That's the topic he wanted to, top, those are the topics he wanted to cover. And his underlying assumption here is his listener's desire for true happiness. Basically, he's assuming not that we're all good or that we're all bad, but that we all desire happiness. And he wants to use that desire for skillful ends. Okay, you add the principle of causality here, that some actions lead to good results and other actions lead to bad results. And you have the framework for the Four Noble Truths, the causes of suffering and suffering itself, and then the path to the end of suffering and the end of suffering. So given that this was his purpose, and it was a very restricted purpose, it restricts the topics that he covered and the questions that he answered. Unlike a professor, he would not answer every question that was thrown his way. He would rate questions as to whether they would help cause suffering or help act as an end to suffering. And for this reason, he classified questions into four types. The first was a type that he would give a straight categorical answer. The second would be the type that he would give what he called an analytical answer. And otherwise he, in other words, he would analyze it into subcategories and then give an answer. The questions that he would respond first with a cross-question, kind of asking you to see how much you understood about the topic or how much you were, you were ready to understand his answer when he gave it. And then finally, the questions he would put aside. He just wouldn't answer them. It turns out that one of the questions that he put aside was the question of, is there, self, is there no self? This wanderer came to see him one time and asked him, is there a self? He remained silent. He said, well, is there no self? He remained silent. And the wanderer got up and went away. <laughs> okay. So you notice here, this is the class of question that he puts that question. Is there a self? Is there no self? He just put that question aside. Now, he's not giving an analytical answer. He's not saying, well, it depends on what kind of self we're talking about. He doesn't give a counter-question or a cross-question. He doesn't say, what kind of self do you mean? Regardless of how you define the self, he would refuse to say whether it exists or not. Now, most current interpretations of what the Buddha had to say on the topic of not-self assume that he was trying to give an analytical answer. I'll give you three examples. One is that he was negating specifically a type of view that was alive in that time, which was the view of the cosmic self. You know, the, the idea that Atman was Brahman, Brahman was Atman, that you have a universal self, that your small self didn't really exist, or your separate self didn't really exist, but a cosmic or connected self did exist. Okay. Excuse me. Okay, that's one. 
So yes, he says you have a self, but it's this cosmic self, and you don't have an individual self. Another interpretation is just the opposite, saying, well, no, you don't have a cosmic self, but you do have your ordinary everyday self. That really does exist. Okay. And then finally, there's one, one alternative that says that he affirmed that the aggregates of form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness are what you are, but they don't qualify to be called a self. In other words, yes, you have a self, but not a permanent self. Okay. This was a view that Indians, Indians, um, Buddhist scholastics adopted and that many modern scholars will adopt, adopt. They sometimes call it, say, yourself is a process. It's not a thing, it's a process. And they just leave it at that. But it turns out that all of these interpretations are wrong. Okay. Against the idea that he was denying specifically the, the Upanishadic self of the cosmic self, you have to look that there are many different kinds of self that were current at the time. Even you look in the Upanishads, and they, they talk about many different ways of defining who you are, what you are. And the Buddha himself defined all, <coughs> divided all these theories into four types. One, he was saying that yourself is material and finite. In other words, saying basically your, your conscious body is who you are. And when that dies, that's the end. Okay? Another is that it is material and infinite. In other words, the whole cosmos is what you are. The third is that it's immaterial and finite. That might fit in with some interpretations of the Christian idea of a soul, that your soul is finite, but it is not material. And finally, you, the idea that the self is immaterial and infinite. You might think of this as the spirit animating the whole cosmos. Um, and the Buddha said that all of these forms of self have their drawbacks, and he would not, I, he would not affirm any of them. He would also identify many different ways in which the sense of I or mind gets focused, some of which include a large cosmic or interconnected self. For example, you could say either that you are form, or you are feeling, or you are perception, you are a type of mental fabrication, or you are a consciousness. Or you could say that the self is either equal to that aggregate, or that it has that aggregate, that it is in the aggregate, like a little man inside yourself, or a little person inside yourself going to look out the eyes and listen out the ears. Or that the aggregate is inside the self. Again, you have this large cosmic self and your body is operating in that much larger frame. And it turns out that the Buddha says specifically that the idea of a cosmic self is one of the most foolish ideas he ever heard of. Um, the specific argument against that is that if there is a self, that also must have what belongs to the self. And so if you said the whole world is yourself, then the question is, does the whole world belong to you? Try moving into somebody else's apartment, <laughs> and you run, run into trouble. What he's pointing out here is that the whole idea of self should contain some element of control. And we might, may want to talk about that later on in, in, the, in the question and answer session. But for the Buddha, basically, the most coherent sense of self comes around what you can control. And he wants you to be able to look at that directly. And the idea of a cosmic self gets in the way of actually seeing that because it removes the idea of control from the self and just becomes a large abstraction. Also, he says specifically that it's not fitting to identify the aggregates as what you are. The, raw, the five aggregates, he says, are the raw material that you create with which you create a sense of a self. 
There's also the problem that if the aggregates are yourself, then, the, then when the aggregates end at nirvana, then yourself gets annihilated, which is an idea that he did not affirm. Now he gives several reasons for the drawbacks of defining a self. One is that you either get involved in wrong view, the wrong view that you have an eternal self. He says that makes it impossible to practice. The wrong view that your self gets annihilated at death, that makes it impossible to practice. And then he has a whole series of what he calls a thicket of views, a writhing of views, a contortion of views, a, f a fetter of views. Because the idea comes back and attacks you, basically. One, either you get tied up in trying to identify yourself with something that cannot really support an identity, or not give an a identity that would give you a true happiness. And then, of course, you get involved in arguments with other people. They define their self as one way, and you tell them, no, it's something else. Of course, they're not going to like it. And then finally, the Buddha says, whenever you define yourself, you limit yourself. And this relates to that story at the beginning of the, of the talk. You, know, you define yourself as a cork and drill, you get stuck as a cork and drill. I want to look for a minute, though, here in, in that topic of the thicket of views that gets you tied down. You think about some of the ideas of self that you might have. Here are some of the drawbacks. Suppose your idea, you say that yourself is intrinsically bad by nature, then your intrinsically bad self could never improve itself. You'd be stuck. You'd have to depend on the help from some sort of outside power in order to find happiness. If you say that your self is intrinsically good, then you have to explain how it is that an intrinsically good self could suffer. And what happened to that good self? When, why did it suddenly change? Mm -hmm. And how would that self cause suffering? If your nature was to be good and then it lost that nature, then if you got back to that nature again, well, you could lose that nature a second time, or a third time, or a fourth. Also, if you believe that you're basically good, that all you have to do is sit and listen to your natural self, that makes you complacent. You think that whatever comes up out of a quiet mind can be trusted. You trust your mo motives in unquestionably, and that can get you into a lot of trouble. Okay? There are also drawbacks to thinking that you have no self. If you had no self, how could you function? In fact, this particular question, which is a legitimate question, lies at the basis of most people's resistance to the teaching that there is no self. And they see the teaching as a threat to their, to deprive them of their strategies for happiness. And this gets to an important point. We define, define a sense of self because we see it as a strategy for attaining happiness. I'll get back to that later. They're metaphysical problems. How could you explain experience without reference to a self? In other words, why is it that your memories don't become my memories and my memories don't become your memories? Okay. And when a person is reborn, <coughs> why, is he why is he or she reborn only as one person? Little Buddha not, notwithstanding. <laughs> okay. And the question, okay, what would attain nirvana if there's no self? Would a nirvana then be annihilation? And who receives the results of my actions if there is no me? And there's a moral issue. How can you justify the precept against killing, for example, if there's nobody to be killed? You know, there's that Zen saying you know, that the, 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 sword, the blade of the sword goes between atoms and there's really nobody in there to be killed. 
the Buddha identified that as very, a very strong form of wrong view. There's a saying that sometimes get bandied around Buddha circles. There's suffering, but no one's suffering. There's the practice, but no one practicing. There's enlightenment, but no one gaining it. The Buddha never said that. It's actually a type of view that he criticized. There's also the problem, if you try to explain experience, if you do assume a self, exactly where is your self? Can you point to it? You point to it, usually it's a feeling or an idea or a state of consciousness. But as the Buddha said, those things change. Or if with a lot of philosophers you say, well, I can't directly experience myself, but because of what I know I can assume it. And then the Buddha said, well, what kind of self is it that doesn't know itself? And if it were deprived of experience, it wouldn't know itself. And then you get into trouble. So the Buddha doesn't try to prove or disprove the existence of a self. He simply sees the act or the karma of holding on to a view of the existence or non-existence of a self as not, as not conducive to understanding suffering or the end of suffering. So basically he pulls out of that issue because it's not going to help you put an end to suffering. But when we look at his teachings, there is an emphasis on developing what he calls the perception of not-self. In Pali, this is anatasanya, as a means to awakening. But it, oh, he also talks freely about a self. He talks about making yourself your mainstay. The self should learn how to reprimand itself. And also you have to learn how to not harm yourself. Here are some passages from the Dhammapada. Your own self is your own mainstay, for who else could your mainstay be? With yourself well-trained, you obtain the mainstay hard to obtain. It's one verse. Another is, evil is done by oneself, by oneself is one defiled. Evil is left undone by oneself, by oneself is one cleansed. Purity and impurity are one's own doing. No one purifies another, no other purifies one. It's another verse. Or here's a third verse. You, should, you yourself should reprove yourself, examine yourself. As a self-guarded meditator with guarded self, mindful, you dwell at ease. So the Buddha talks quite a lot about not self and self. So the question is, what's going on? Is he playing fast and loose with his concepts? Are there two levels of truth? We can look for some clues in the teachings about how he treats this topic of self. One is, there are two passages in the Anguttara Nagaya, and Josh isn't here tonight. But I did prepare the, the citations. Sherry? Kathy? Anguttara 4.159 and Anguttara 3.40. In one of them, Ananda is teaching a nun, and he says that conceit is to be overcome, but you need conceit in order to practice the path. Conceit here meaning the thought, I am. It's an interesting story. Um, there's this one nun who really had it for Ananda. And so she sends word that she's sick. And so Ananda comes to visit her, and so she sees him coming from afar, so she lies down in the bed, she covers herself with a robe. And Ananda comes in and he says, okay, we practice to the, so that we can get to a point we no longer need food, but we need to use food in order to have the strength to practice. We practice to overcome the need for craving, but we need to use craving as part of the practice. In other words, the desire for awakening is a part of the practice that motivates us. We need, we're practicing to, for the sake of overcoming conceit, but conceit is something we need in the practice. And his illustration here is of the idea, other people can do this, 
Why can't I? They're human beings. I'm a human being. What do they have that I don't have? And that is a form of conceit. Because conceit doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean pride, but it means a sense of just that I exist. And then finally he says, we practice for the sake of overcoming sex, getting beyond sex, and there is no role for sex at all. <laughs> so she takes the robe off of her, from over her face and she apologizes. <laughs> We're getting in there. So that's one teaching, the teaching on the need for conceit as part of the practice. There's another passage where the Buddha talks about having the self as a governing principle. In other words, he talks about how when you practice, you're practicing for a true happiness. And sometimes you get discouraged. You say, this is taking an awful long time. Maybe I can just give up and just rest content with where I am. And then he says, to remind yourself that you practice for the sake of your desire for true happiness. And if you don't stick with it, you're letting yourself down. So for the sake of my own true happiness, I want to stick with the practice. He encourages that thought. The second clue for understanding what the Buddha is about here is he gives a very detailed analysis of how your idea of self is born. It's this process of I-making and my-making in the quest for happiness. Both the aspects of experience that we control in order to attain happiness and the aspects that we identify as the lasting part that will experience the happiness. In other words, we identify with the powers that we have to produce happiness, and also we identify with the idea of, oh, I'm going to be the consumer of my happiness someplace down the line, if not right now. And you look at your own life. We all very start out with a very clear sense of, very early, with a sense of what's not yourself in any given situation and what is yourself. But it changes. For example, suppose somebody's beating up on your little sister down the street. Now, in that context, she's your little sister. And you're going to go down and you're going to defend her, right? Unless the bully, the, the bully is really big, in which case you get your friends together and you go down and defend your sister, okay? But in that moment, she's your sister very strongly. Now, your sister comes back to the house and she steals your toy truck. All of a sudden, she's not your sister. <laughs> Your sense of self has a very clear line between you and your sister at that point. And it changes very frequently this way. And you look at the way you go through your, your daily life and you realize that there are times when you identify with something and other times when that gets placed outside of your sense of self. What this means is that the idea of self and not self are perceptions that we create. Both are a form of karma. This is why I said earlier that we're looking at the issue of self and not self under the, under the framework of karma, rather than the other way around. So karma here is the context, and when we're talking about karma, the issue is not who, what is your true self or what is not your true self, but the issue is when is this process of selfing skillful and when is it not. Okay. Third, as the Buddha says, the line between what we see as self and not self is related to our sense of control. We may have no absolute control over the five aggregates, but we do have a measure of relative control over them. So the Buddha is recognizing them, recognizing that fact. He says, make use of that fact. You have some control over your body. You have some control over your feelings and your perceptions. So try to use them in a skillful way so that you can ultimately gain what lies beyond conditions. Use it as part of the path to the end of suffering. 
The fourth clue is that there are stages in the practice. We start by taking the raw material from which we concoct a sense of self, i.e. the five aggregates, and then we use them as part of the path. And you can see this very especially clearly in the Buddha's descriptions of right concentration. The first jhana. Okay. You have the form of the body, which is the breath. You try to create feelings of ease around that form. You hold on to the perception of breath in order to maintain your concentration. The mind engages in directed thought and evaluation about the breath, like we were doing just now. You keep your mind on the breath and you examine it. Okay, is it comfortable? Is it not comfortable? If it's not comfortable, let's change. All of that is called fabrication. And then finally, you're conscious of all of these things. So what you're doing when you practice concentration is you're taking the five aggregates and making them part of the path. You might think of the analogy, instead of carrying them around as a load of bricks on your shoulder, you put them down on the, on the ground and you make them a path that you can walk on. Then finally, the Buddha says, as you develop this state of concentration and you get greater mastery with it, then you start, your first step is to look at other attachments that you might have and to see them as not really equaling the, the pleasure you can get from concentration. So you can abandon your attachment. And then finally, he says, you turn around and you look at the state of concentration itself and realize that that, true, that too is inconstant, not totally under your control. In other words, you're using a perception here, perception of not-self, perception of inconstancy, or perception of emptiness, to let go of your attachment. And then finally, he says, once that perception has really done its work, then you incline the mind to something that's deathless, something that lies beyond the aggregate, something that's a happiness is unfabricated. So in other words, self is a strategy. We use this, our sense of self, as a strategy. We make these selves all the time. When you go home tonight, you might want to stop and think about how many selves did you have today? Okay. At the same time, we learn to unself things that we've identified with. You come across something that was under your control and you realize it's no longer under your control. And then you drop it. And some things we do this with automatically. And there's an example they give often in Thailand. They say, when, okay, when, when your fingernails are on your finger, they're your fingernails, right? And then when you clip them, what do you do with them? What do you do with the remains? Do you keep them? Or you throw them away? When your skin sloughs off, when your hair falls out, you don't say, well, gee, this has always been mine, therefore I've got to keep it. <laughs> Can you imagine what you'd look like with a bag of hair and nail clippings going around all the time? It'd be horrible. <laughs> They'd throw you out of New York. <laughs> At least they'd throw you off the, they throw you off the beach in California. Um. <laughs> okay. So in the Buddhist teachings on how to put in enough suffering, he uses both things as strategy. He uses your sense of self as a strategy, and he uses your sense of not-self as a strategy as well. He wants to teach you to think in strategic terms. And because we tend to th use these strategies without really thinking about them, he wants to look, want you to look at them and think about them very deliberately, to use these processes with awareness and discernment. So the question the Buddha is answering here when he talks about self and not self is not, do I have a self or what is my true self? It's a question that he identified as the beginning of wisdom, which is, what is skillful, 
what is unskillful? What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term harm and suffering? And what, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? Because he calls that the beginning of wisdom because, one, you see that your, your pleasure and your pain, your happiness and your sorrow, depend on your actions. And then realizing that you have a choice in how you act. And then, three, that long-term happiness is better than short-term. That's the beginning of wisdom. And so what, this, what we'll translate this into is that when is the perception of self skillful, leading to long-term welfare and happiness? And when is the perception of not, not self uh, skillful, leading to long-term welfare and happiness? So just as one closing remark, I want to comment here on the issue of perennial philosophy. When you hear about perennial philosophy, the idea that all religions teach basically the same thing, or all good religions teach the same thing, they start out by saying the primary question is, what is your true self? That's the beginning of the perennial philosophy. But the Buddha says, don't ask. Don't bother. Okay? If someone asks, asks you, you don't answer them. Instead, you look at what you're doing, and you look at the results of what you're doing. And that's where the way to the end of suffering lies. So that's, those are the main points for tonight's talk. It went a lot quicker than I thought it would. <laughs> so we have lots of time for questions. But let me go over some of the points again. That one, the Buddha said there are drawbacks to trying to define a sense of self. That you, basically, you limit yourself by any definition, and then you get yourself entangled what he calls a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, anything, views that tie you down and create lots of difficulty. So he saw that there was nothing to be gained by getting into that conversation about who am I or what am I. But he does want you to look very carefully at how you define your sense of self and how you create that repeatedly as you go throughout the day. And the question is, why do you do this? And you see that there's some advantage to be, to be made from it. Sometimes you hear people saying that, okay, all you have to do is realize that your sense of self causes suffering and you just drop it like that. Now, if it worked that easily, we'd have lots of little senses of selves dropped all over the floor here in, in, in New York Insight. But part of you realizes, hey, I need a sense of self in order to function. It's how I find my happiness. So there's an instinctive resistance, and it's not a foolish resistance, it's an intelligent resistance. We do use this as a strategy, but it's good to see it as a strategy and not as something essential. And then let's start looking at our strategies to see when they are skillful and when they're not. And that's what the path is all about, is to start learning how to use your sense of self in a way that's conducive to the end of suffering. At the same time, learning how that you're already involved in perceptions of not-self. And we do that all the time, too. You walk down the street, you realize, well, that's not me, that's not mine. And the question is, when do you do that skillfully and when, do you do, when is it not skillful? And so he wants you to look at this process and do it more deliberately with more attention, with more awareness, and actually does become part of the, end of the path to the end of suffering. So, are there any questions? Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.